0: Okay, Refuting Calvinism YouTube channel I'm back with you today. And today we're going to tackle one of the passages by Calvinists that they say uh, very clearly portrays unconditional election and unconditional reprobation. And uh, so we're going to look at it today. This is one of the strongholds of Calvinism. <clears throat> I'm hoping that by the end of this video, you'll see that their interpretation of this passage is wrong. Uh, so what I want to do now, I want to <clears throat> read through the passage, and then uh, when I'm done reading through the passage, uh, we'll kind of pick it apart piece by piece and actually see what it says. Uh, so let's, in order to get the context here, let's start in Romans chapter 9 and verse 1, and we'll read through verse 24. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. That I had great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. There is not that the word of God has taken no effect for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, for the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, or having done any good or evil, and the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For it says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the, to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and he, on and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will a thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? So that the potter hath power over the clay, and the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endure with much suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? Okay, before I get into, you know, this piece by piece, going through each verse, I want to point out three things I see as problems with the Calvinistic interpretation of this passage. One, is they don't read the context. They'll go to the last part of what I just read, and they'll take verse after verse out of context, and they'll just interpret it in a vacuum. Don't even look at the immediate context, which is what I just read. Let alone the entire context was really the whole book of Romans, because Paul is—he's really giving a long, drawn-out argument here regarding the Jews and Gentiles. Uh, Secondly, is that they're—they're reading their own bias, their own their own interpretation, their own theology into it instead of taking theology out of it. So one is the context, two is is the bias of reading theology into it instead of taking theology out of it. And three, uh, and this is probably the reason one of the reasons if, if someone were to read this passage and try to interpret in context and try to uh... And not try to read the theology into it, the third thing is pretty important as well Is they don't go back and look at these references these quotes from the old testament that paul is using and see exactly what those things are saying they simply just look at these verses and they kind of make them say what they want to make them say or try to say that Paul is making them say something they didn't say in the first place in, in the original context in the Old Testament. So those are the three things and uh, hopefully throughout this video you'll see these three things that I, I just pointed out. So let's let's look at the context here of, of what Paul is talking about. Back in again in verse, in verse 1, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Why? Why does he have great sorrow and continual grief in his heart? For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren. He, he just he wishes that his brethren could be saved so badly that he would even wish himself to be a for the, for their behalf, so that they could be saved. But who are his brethren? My countrymen according to the flesh. Yeah, that's the Jews. It even explains you more. Who are Israelites? To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises this is the israelite nation of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came so Christ came he was a jew he was an israelite when he came so he's over all the eternally blessed god amen so Christ came as a from the uh, according to the flesh as an israelite and and Paul is simply saying here all these things belong to my brethren according to the flesh to israelites to jews I wish that I could be cut off and accursed curse from, the, from Christ for the sake of my brethren. That's how much he loves them. He has uh, continual grief and sorrow in his heart. But he goes on to say, even though they have all these things, some might sit outside and say, well, then I guess God failed. You know, God's given the Israelites all these things. He chose them. The Messiah came through them. He gave them the word of God. They had the miracles, the signs, the wonders in the Old Testament, delivering from the hands of the Egyptians. Uh, you know, preparing a way for them to survive the famine uh, when he put Joseph in the position he put him in as second to Pharaoh. All these things God did for them, even, even the 40 years in the desert when they were rebellious, God sustained them and then gave them the promised land. All these things God did for them, uh, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, winning battles, and yet most of them are not following their Messiah. They're not following Christ Jesus. And some of them might sit back and think, well, I guess God failed. Well, if God's a Calvinist God, he failed, because God chose Israel. God chose the Jewish nation, but yet most of them didn't trust the Messiah. Uh, but if you read on here, it says, It's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Well, this is talking about two different Israels here. you got the physical lineage Israel who came from the, the seed of Abraham. They come through Abraham, uh, and through Isaac, and through Jacob. Um, And then you have the spiritual Israel. And let me just go back to Romans chapter 2 for a second and read to you something else Paul said earlier in this book. And this is why I'm saying that context is so important here, not just the immediate context what I just read, but the context as a whole from the whole book of Romans. Romans chapter 2 and verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. He's talking about the Mosaic Law here, and he'll he'll, um, clarify that here in a second. Therefore, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, so making a differentiation here between the, the law and the righteous requirements of the law, which is the moral law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, the moral law, the righteous requirements of the law, judge you, who, the Israelites, who even with your written code, the Torah, and the circumcision, physical circumcision, are a transgressor of the law, the righteous requirements of the law, the moral law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who was one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in a letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So that helps clarify what he's talking about in Romans 9, that are, uh, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Israel is just another name for Jacob. They're not all Israel who are of Jacob's descendants. Okay, and then he goes on and he can go further. Not only are, not are all Israel, people who are of Jacob's descendants, not only are all they not spiritual Israel, but not all of Abraham's physical children are children of the promise, For uh, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, the physical seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Uh, now this is a quote from Genesis 21 verse 12, and this is where Sarah's telling Abraham, kick Hagar and Ishmael out of the you know out of the house, for, for lack of better, that's layman's way of saying it, And uh, God says, yeah, that's okay, because your promise will not be through Ishmael. It will not be through Hagar. It will be through Isaac. Uh, So he did that, and not only did Abraham have Sarah and um, Hagar as, well, Hagar was a concubine or a servant or a slave, uh, but he also had a second wife. After Sarah had died, uh, he had another wife, I'm trying to remember what her name was here, Uh, Keturah. And I think I believe he had six sons through Keturah, and you can find the information for that, for that in Genesis chapter 25 and verses one through four. So God is saying to Abraham in Genesis 21:12, "Your seed shall be called the promise." The child of the promise is Isaac. It will not be uh, the, children, the child you had through Hagar. It will not be the children you have through Keturah. It's going to be the child you had through Sarah. Okay. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, his all his children, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. So Isaac is a, is the child of the promise for the seed, for the Messiah to come through. And also, the spiritual Israel, those are the only ones who are truly Israel in God's eyes. Okay, and then he goes on, so he talks about Isaac and Ishmael. Now he goes on to talk about Jacob and Esau, Okay? For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, "The The older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So the first situation we have two children, at that point in time, when Genesis 21:12 was written, or when it's spoken, uh, we have two children to deal with here, Ishmael and Isaac, who could potentially be children of the promise through whom the Messiah would come, and through whom we will have the nation of Israel, um, or the, the Hebrew nation. And he chose, God chose Isaac, because he simply chose to. He's sovereign, and he can choose Isaac if he wants to. Like, he chose Abraham sovereignly. But it's not talking about personal salvation here. It's talking about nations and choosing a nation to bring the Messiah into the world. And now we have the same thing going on with Jacob and Esau. Except it's a little bit different. This time, there's two children from the same woman. In fact, they were twins. And God says, it makes it clear in verse 11, that it was he didn't choose Jacob over Esau because Jacob was more godly than Esau, because Jacob did more good than Esau, because Esau was more wicked than Jacob. He chose him as a nation, as a person, as a nation that will come from him, simply because it's a sovereign choice to choose so. Now let's look at a, a verse. Let's say it wasn't of works, but of him who calls, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Now verse 11 says, we said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Now this is a quote from the Bible, from Genesis chapter 25 and verse 23, the Old Testament, and let's go back there and see uh, what, is actually being said here to clarify what Paul is being said. So one thing you have to keep in mind is that the people who Paul are writing to, they know the scriptures. Paul doesn't have to explain to them in context what he's trying to say from the Old Testament. They would already know what this says here. So he gives kind of like a short snippet of it. But Let's, let's see as a whole what it's saying here. In Genesis chapter 25 and verse 22 is where we'll start. Actually verse 21. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So the older shall serve the younger. This is the very last part of this quote, but the, fir- uh, but the first part of this quote clarifies what the last part is actually saying there are two nations in your womb, two peoples not two persons, two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, not only does this defeat the fact that it's not talking about uh, Esau serving Jacob, but at no point in time and these two individuals history, Jacob and Esau, did Esau serve Jacob. And in fact, it was probably the exact opposite because Jacob actually fled Esau after he stole his birthright. Uh, well, he, I guess his birthright was kind of given to him. Esau was wicked for doing that, but when he stole his blessing from his father Isaac he fled for his own life because Esau was very angry and wanted to kill him. And it wasn't until later on that he came back and begged for mercy from Esau. That doesn't sound like Esau is serving him to me. So this is talking about nations here. Once again, in context in the Old Testament, and from what we know about Jacob and Esau, Esau never served Jacob. So it's talking about nations here, two peoples, which will be separated from Rebekah's womb. And then goes on to say, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, this verse has uh, you know, drawn up a lot of controversy. And you'll see these videos, like this one by uh, Robert Morey of, uh, I can't remember, Truth Defenders, Truth Defenders Ministry. And he's just really being real sarcastic and just real, uh, you know, I don't know what the word to give to it, but he's just, he's not representing God properly. And he has this video on YouTube where he says, well, does God love anybody? Let's go to Romans 9. Well, he loved Jacob because he hated anybody. Oh, he hated Esau uh, because he's, he's defeating this thing of does God love everybody. And, uh, but he doesn't go to the context here. He doesn't go to the context of this passion, of the, of the whole of Romans, or go back to the actual verse where it, this is quoted in Malachi and before we go to Malachi, one thing I want to point out to you is this is that verse 12, the older shall serve the younger, is quoted uh, is probably uh, said around 2000 BC, we're talking about 4000 years ago now but then Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated is written around 400 BC, 1600 years later and by the way Jacob and Esau are both dead by then 1600 years later in Malachi chapter 1. So let's turn to Malachi chapter (laughs) 1 this is the last book of the Old Testament and let's see exactly what is being said here. Malachi chapter 1 and start in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you says the Lord, yet you say (coughs) in what way have you loved us? Love too. Israel. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, and by the way Jacob's another name for Israel of course, was not Esau Jacob's brother Says the Lord Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, We have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will throw down. They will be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So once again, we're talking about nations. Edom is the nation that came from Esau, while Israel is the nation that came from Jacob. And he's simply saying here, not saying he hated Esau the individual, or even the nation in such a way where he's sending them to hell. This passage isn't saying that all Edomites are going to hell, and it's not saying that all Israelites are going to heaven. And that's what people would have you believe, who uh, are Calvinists sometimes, when it comes to this, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It's not saying that I hated Jacob individually or personally, or that I loved Esau, or I loved Jacob and hated Esau individually and personally. It's not talking about salvation even. It's talking about nations and how he's, he's uh, helped Israel sustain their nation. He's tore down the nation of Edom. And they even said, we'll build the places back up. He said, I will tear down, I will throw down uh, the, the nation of Edom. So, God's not saying, once again, that Jacob goes to heaven and Esau goes to hell, or that that's what God does, that God picks and chooses. You're going to heaven, you're going to hell. You're going to heaven, you're going to hell. That's what the heck said to have you believe from this passage. And I would even say that he's not saying, literally speaking, that I, I hate Esau. In fact, I would say this is kind of like a Hebrew idiom. Let's go to Luke chapter 14, and you'll see Jesus use this idiom himself. And if you're a Calvinist and you're saying that he literally hated Esau, and he literally loved Jacob individually and personally, or even as a nation as a whole, or even to the point where he's going to send some to hell and some to heaven, he's picking them to go to hell or heaven, uh, then let's go to Luke 14 and verse 26. Actually, start in verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, if Anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. So here we have Jesus calling his disciples. If we're consistent as Calvinists here, if we're going to say that it means that in Romans 9, let's go to Luke 14 and do the same thing, the same principles of interpretation here that you have to hate your father and mother, your wife and your children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, you cannot not be a disciple of Jesus. But let's, 1 John 3.15, if we're going to take that past, we're going to take it to say that, to mean that, 1 John 3.15 says this, <clears throat> whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding or remaining in him. So, uh, if you're going to take it literally here, you have to do the same thing with Luke 14. But what is, what is Jesus actually saying in Luke 14, 26? I believe what he's simply saying is, you must, when you're comparing your love for me to your love for your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your wife, your children, when you compare your love for me to them, it should be as if you hate them. And I think it's exactly what God is saying in Malachi 1, that is quoting in Romans 9, That look, I've loved you so much, so much more than Esau, can't you tell? Can't you see I've blessed you so greatly? But Esau and and the Edomites I have destroyed, I have not blessed them? But he's not saying, once again, individually or personally, for Esau or Jacob, or individually or personally, for the Israelites or for the Edomites, that they're going to heaven or they're going to hell. And I think that's the proper way to interpret this verse in Romans 9. So God's not saying he hates him individually or personally. Okay, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Well, Calvin would have you believe there are, there is unrighteousness with God. But let's read on. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Let's go to Exodus chapter 33. Because this is what is being quoted here in verse 15 when he's talking to Moses. And we'll get the context here. And what is happening here in Exodus 33 is that Moses is saying to God, Go before us, let your presence go before us, sustain us, or how would people know that we are your people? All right, so let's look in verse, let's start in verse 13 actually. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider this nation is your people and he said my presence will go with you and I will give you rest then he said to him if your presence does not go with us do not bring us up from here for how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us so we shall be separate your people and I from all the peoples who are upon the face of the earth talking about nations obviously so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please show me your glory. And now, this is he—this he, is where the quote comes in from Romans 9. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So that's where we'll stop right there. So once again, we're talking about nations here. God has chosen the nation of Israel, and he's going to prove it to Moses by putting uh, his presence with them and uh, showering his grace upon them as a nation, as a people. Not talking about individual salvation. Once again, this whole passage in Romans 9, has not once talked about personal, individual salvation or unconditional election or God picking and choosing who's going to be saved and who's going to go to hell. It's talking about uh, picking a nation that will will bring the Messiah through and he's had mercy and compassion upon them. Uh, So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Not of him who wills. And the Calvinists will use this to come against free will. And this is actually pretty funny, but it's simply saying here that god it doesn't matter how much you will to be God's chosen nation, how much you will uh, to have God show mercy and compassion to your nation uh, it doesn't matter how much you want to be the nation who the Messiah, the promised Messiah will come through God hasn't chosen you as a nation or God has chosen a nation that's his sovereign choice to choose, and we can't change his mind on that we can uh, simply walk in His ways, and in the end of the days, so if we walk in His ways, trusting in the Messiah, we can be forgiven of our sins and pardoned and be reconciled to God the Father. But this isn't talking about salvation. This is talking about nations, once again. It's of God who shows mercy. What kind of mercy? Uh, giving grace and letting His presence go before us. as He did with Moses and the Israelites. That's what it means right here for mercy. So He's gone from uh, Isaac and Ishmael to Jacob and Esau, now to Moses and Pharaoh alright for this verse 17 the scripture says to the Pharaoh for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth so let's stop right there the Calvinists would have you believe that the reason God raised up Pharaoh was to send him to hell and this is what it's saying here, this is all talking about individual personal salvation The reason he raised Pharaoh up and hardened his heart, which we'll read here in a second, is so he can destroy him in the end. And in fact, that's the reason why he raises every unsaved person up, is to destroy them in the end. To send them to hell in the end. But that's not what God says here about Pharaoh. He says that my name may be declared in all the earth. Well, let's go to some scriptures here that'll prove that through what God did to Pharaoh, and the Egyptians. And what he did in that whole situation with the ten plagues and delivering the nation of Israel from the Egyptians' hand and from Pharaoh's hands, you'll see from these scriptures I'm about to read that God's name was proclaimed and declared all the earth and and, and made his name great. Let's turn to some passages here. Exodus chapter 15 and verses 14 through 16. The people will hear and be afraid Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom, there's Esau again, will be dismayed. The mighty man of Moab, trembling, will take hold of of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord, to the people pass over whom you have purchased." all these people and all these nations were afraid because of what God had done to deliver the Israelites from the Egyptians. And they dared not touch these people because they knew that what God did to the Egyptians, He he could do the same thing to them if He chose to. Because they were coming against His chosen people. Let's go to another passage. Joshua chapter 2 and verses 8 through 11. This is Rahab. Uh, She had just taken in two spies and was harboring them even though her nation told her not to. Now before they lay down, she, Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Shihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So the whole reason they're afraid as they go through this, all the things that the Israelites have done is because the Lord your God, for he is God in heaven and above and on earth beneath. They're afraid of them because they have the presence of God with them. This is God's chosen people. Let's read one more passage here. In 1 Samuel, chapter 4, and verse 7 and 8. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us! Who would deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Of course, they're using God's plural there because they don't understand who God is, but the fact that you're speaking from the Philistines' point of view here, not from you know, from a, a person who knows God's point of view, that's why they're using plural. But the fact of the matter is, they're f- afraid because these are the gods, who, or the god, who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. So God is ma- proclaiming his name, making his name great among the nations. So he actually fulfilled his purpose in what he did with Pharaoh and the Egyptians and delivering his people from their hands. All right, Let's read on to verse 18. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. So let's just stop right there for a second and let's let's go back to this this passage next. I'm not going to read through them all, but I'm going to give you some references for them so you can read for yourself. The Calvinists would have you believe that God was the only one doing the hardening when it comes to Pharaoh, at least the ones I've talked to. Most of them would have you believe that. But the fact of the matter is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart several times. I believe it was six or seven times before God even started hardening his heart directly. You can find these in Exodus seven verses thirteen to fourteen, uh, Exodus seven verses twenty-two and twenty-three, Exodus eight fifteen, Exodus eight nineteen, Exodus eight thirty-two, and Exodus nine seven. And in all these verses, you see him. Pharaoh hardening his own heart first, and then God gets involved in hardening his heart. Now, this word "harden" simply means, in the Greek, it simply means make stubborn. And if you think about when someone's stubborn, they're simply being strong in their position, whether it's right or wrong. They're being strong in their position, and uh, no one's going to make them move. No one's going to make them budge, because they're they're stubborn. They're, they're, they're hardened and. And that's what this word "hard" means. It means to make stubborn. So all God was doing was delivering, uh, was helping, helping Pharaoh, as he hardened his own heart, make his own heart even more stubborn so that he would continue the path he was going down. And that's what God did. Because Pharaoh, I mean, Pharaoh was doing this anyway. He was not letting the Israelites go anyway. So God said, okay, I'm going to turn you over to your own stubbornness, your own hardness of heart and I'm going to continue to unleash plagues upon you until Pharaoh finally let him go after his first son was killed. I guess that might have softened his heart just a little bit. But it's not talking about Pharaoh and his individual personal salvation or all the Egyptians, their individual personal salvation. It's simply talking about uh, the fact that he wants his people delivered, his nation delivered from the hands of Pharaoh. And the manner in which he did it is is what he chose to do. I mean, God could have uh, just squashed them like this. He could have wiped out the whole nation of Egypt the whole and wiped out Pharaoh to, uh, with them uh, like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he, that's the way he did it with Sodom and Gomorrah. He could He could have unleashed ten plagues of Sodom and Gomorrah if he wanted but he chose not to and God has the right to destroy nations, to tear them down or to bring them up. Uh, that that's his obligation to do that. but it's not talking about individual or personal salvation. You would say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? You're right. When it comes to choosing nations, you can't resist God's will. God can choose the nation of Egypt to, to destroy them, the Saba and Gomorrah can destroy them, he can choose the nation of Israel uh, to make them powerful and that no one can touch them, even though these people will to touch them will to kill them and will to destroy them, he can protect them. Uh, that's God's choice to do that if he wants to. And you have no right to tell him what to do in those situations. But this is not, once again, talking about individual or personal salvation. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will a thing formed say to to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God wanted to show his wrath and to make his power known, endure with much long-suffering the vessel of wrath prepared for destruction." And that he might... well, we'll stop right there. So we'll stop with the part where he, the vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, once again, the people who are reading this from Paul, this letter from Paul, are gonna know what he's talking about here. He's talking about a passage found in Jeremiah chapter 18. Let's go there. Let's read this passage. And let's see if he's talking about individuals once again. Or he's talking about nations. Jeremiah chapter 18, and verse 1, and if you have a subheading in this, on this chapter, you might have the same subheading I do, which is called "It's the subheading, the potter and the clay. And of course, the subheading is not inspired. I'm just kind of pointing that out to you, the potter and the clay is a subheading. The word which came, from, came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Says the Lord. So the house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Says the Lord. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Not all individual, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation, and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy it, the nation against whom I have spoken, turns from its evil. I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I, <clears throat> the instant I speak concerning a nation, and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight, so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good, which I said I would, I would benefit it. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, every one of you, from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. So he's talking to the nation of Israel here. He's saying, If you will not turn from your wicked ways, I am devising a plan, I will destroy your nation. Now, uh, of course, the individuals won't be completely destroyed and that every individual is not responsible for every other individual's sin. God's not saying that. He's saying the nation as a whole, if they'll turn from their sins, He will relent of bringing this disaster, this punishment upon them. So once again, we see in Jeremiah 18 that this quote from Romans 9 talk about the potter and the clay. It's simply God talking to the nation of Israel, the house of Israel, and in Jeremiah 18 it was a warning. And they did not submit to this warning. And what happened to them? They were tooken, They were taken into captivity and the Babylon and that's what happened to them. They did not relent, they did not repent of their their sins and God said look, I, I, I'm making you, I'm molding you, I'm trying to make you and mold you, but you got marred in my hands because of your sin and now I'm going to make you and mold you into a, a vessel for dishonor a vessel for wrath because you're not willing to to stay in my hands and do what I tell you to do. That's what it's saying here in Romans 9, exactly what it says in Jeremiah 18. But once again, it's not talking about individual personal salvation or even individuals at all. He's going to be talking about the nation or the house of Israel. <clears throat> and this, this verse in Romans 9 could actually be another warning to the nation of Israel because Romans was actually written before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And as we know, after the nation of Israel was dispersed from, from their lands around that time, uh, they had, didn't come back to it until like the 1940s so God brought his judgment hand upon them and uh, so that's what it's talking about here is that he's enduring with much long suffering the vessel of wrath prepared for destruction okay so they weren't originally prepared for destruction though they've been prepared for destruction and if you go back to Jeremiah 18 once again they don't have to continue in their destruction God will relent from his destruction if they will repent of their sins so he has the the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. Let's go to a uh, Second Timothy for a second. Second Timothy chapter two, and verse twenty. Actually, start in verse uh, nineteen. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal: <clears throat> the Lord knows who are His. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Exactly what it says in Romans 9. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, being a vessel of dishonor, sanctified, and he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So if you, if you will cleanse yourself from the latter, from sin, you'll repent of your sins, you'll depart from iniquity, Uh, you'll you'll depart from being a vessel of dishonor, a vessel of wood and clay. Uh, God will use him as a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Well, it seems like the responsibility is not laid upon God as to whether someone will be a vessel of honor or dishonor, a vessel of wrath or a vessel for glory. It seems like the responsibility is placed upon the person that God responds according to how the person acts. Are they going to be marred in God's hands? Are they going to repent of their sins and God will save them as a nation and have mercy upon them as a nation? Uh, and then when it comes to individuals, same thing. When, when it comes to individuals, uh, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, being a, a vessel of wood and clay, and a vessel of dishonor, uh, and, and he'll depart from iniquity, as verse 19 says, he'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the Master, prepared for every good work. So it's not about God picking and choosing, it's about whether someone wants to be a vessel for honor or for dishonor, a vessel of wood and clay or gold and silver. If they're going to depart from iniquity, repent of their sins or not, and God will respond accordingly. But I want you to point I want to point here in verse twenty two that God endured with much long suffering. How is that even possible if Calvinism is true? If God's already picked and chosen who's going to go to hell and who's going to go to heaven, then why does he endure anything? He's not enduring with suffering. Uh, if, if if he's if he's already predestined, them to go to hell. He doesn't have to endure anything. There's no long suffering. There's no patience. Uh, but when it comes to immediate context here, he's talking about Pharaoh. He endured him. Pharaoh hardened his own heart the first, uh, after the first five plagues, and God endured that. I mean, like I said before, God could have just crushed. He could have just crushed him if he wanted to. He didn't have to go through these ten plagues. But God was having mercy on him. And God was enduring with much long-suffering, but he was being marred in the the hands of the the maker, of the the potter. His clay was being marred, and therefore God said, okay, I'm going to make you into a vessel of destruction, I will still receive glory from it. I will make my name great. I will proclaim my name, declare my name in all the earth, and that's what will happen through you. I will still be glorified. And then the verse, so you have prepared for destruction. And then you have that He might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So now we have prepared for destruction and prepared beforehand for glory. That's two totally different things. And I don't, once again, I don't think he's talking about individuals here prepared beforehand for glory. I think he prepares everyone beforehand for glory. It's a matter of whether they're going to be a vessel of honor or dishonor. A vessel of wood and clay or a vessel of gold and silver are going to be depart from iniquity are going to stay in their sins he's preparing them beforehand for glory, but the other ones he's he's enduring with much long suffering, preparing them for destruction, as vessels of wrath. But who is he prepared beforehand for glory? Is it individuals? Is it persons for heaven or for hell? He says, even us whom he called, who is he called? Not the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. So the ones who he called are the Jews, but he's also prepared the Gentiles for glory. So talking about nations there. So God's plan was never as a whole in history. It was never just to save the Jews. He said, Abraham in your seed, all nations shall be blessed. So he's prepared for, for glory Jews and Gentiles not just Jews. So this whole issue here once again is that Calvinists are, are reading their own theology into the Bible instead of getting the, their theology from the Bible and this is one of their best proof texts. Uh, I'll probably be doing the video on John 6 and Ephesians 1 in the near future and those are the only two other good proof texts they have for their whole theology. And once those are stomped out, they have no other excuse but to repent of their Calvinism and come to knowledge of the truth. But anyway, they, they, they interpret their Bible in light of their own biases. They bring their theology to the Bible and try to get it out of the Bible instead of reading the Bible in context and getting theology from the Bible. So bias, context, really big thing here, I mean, I went back to Romans 3 just once, or Romans 2, and then I read from the beginning of Romans 9, not in the middle of it, and take verses out here and there and interpret it in a vacuum. And then 3, going back to the Old Testament that's being quoted here, to understand that it's not talking about individuals, not talking about personal salvation, or people being destined for heaven or for hell, or unconditional election, or unconditional reprobation, or double predestination. It's simply talking about nations here. That's what it's talking about all throughout this. And uh, hopefully you can see this from this video. Well, I look forward to interacting with you on this. And uh, I just pray that God will open your eyes to the truth. That you'll repent of all, all iniquity, depart from all iniquity. Because God knows who it is. A solid foundation of God stands. And uh, become a vessel for of, of gold and silver. A vessel for honor, not a vessel of dishonor, of wood and clay. And if you will cleanse yourself of the latter, uh, God will sanctify you and use you for his glory. And you can be in relationship with him. All right. Well, that's it for today from Refuting Calvinism for this video. And I pray this video you are edified, you are blessed, and that um, hopefully you may have got some insights from this this video. Uh, God bless.